it's in the U.S. national interest to end its approach to foreign policy as a way of managing clients throughout the world. That system benefits nobody but the ruling class. And it is set up precisely to benefit the ruling class, largely to provide energy resources to the ruling class. There's a very clear material interest underlying all of this and to and it benefits the military-industrial complex in the U.S., and it, and it benefits the um, politically captured energy interests. My name is Alex Ojili in São Paulo, Brazil, and welcome to BungaCast, or Alpha Bunga Bunga for the long-time listeners. We've been doing this for nearly seven years, and in that time, have not dedicated an episode to Israel and Palestine. Why, that's pretty weird for a global politics podcast, you say? Well, in our turbulent times, in this epoch we call the end of the end of history, Israel-Palestine hasn't seen exceptional turbulence. But more importantly, the fact is that Israel-Palestine takes an outsized importance in world affairs, one it maybe doesn't deserve. Now, you may feel that Israel-Palestine is far more important than the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, for instance, or Iran and Saudi Arabia, or Turkey and the Kurds. That's a legitimate position, but it's a case that needs to be made rather than taken as given. So, with that in mind, welcome to our first episode on Israel-Palestine. As you might imagine, this won't be the last word on the matter. We'll have further episodes on the conflict in coming weeks, and what we hope to do across those is to think things afresh, to try to be objective and not be beholden to the fixed ideas and unreflected commitments that make this conflict so intractable and fraught. Today, I'm talking to Jacob Siegel. Jacob is senior editor at Tablet and co-host of the Manifesto podcast. He was also, interestingly, some years back, an intelligence and infantry officer in Iraq and Afghanistan for the U.S. Army. Now, we planned on getting Jacob on to talk through his long, penetrating, and comprehensive essay that he wrote on disinformation, on information war, and how the U.S. state has created what effectively amounts to a ministry for truth. And we are going to talk to him about that. But what happened is that Hamas then attacked Israel on the 7th of October. And as Jacob is a commentator on the politics of the region, we couldn't avoid discussing the matter with him. So here is my conversation with Jacob on both Israel-Palestine and disinformation. Welcome, Jacob. Welcome to BungaCast. And where are you joining us from? Thank you for having me. I'm in central Israel. All right. So um, I guess I should start off by asking really what the mood is like there. Um, These things are always a bit difficult to capture. Yeah, I think the mood is, uh, you know, anxious, but determined. Um, People are waiting for the other shoe to drop. Obviously, we're recording this on Tuesday. The full ground offensive has not yet started in Gaza, and um, nor has the, the second front in the north really opened up yet, though there have been um, skirmishes back and forth, rocket attacks from 
uh, Hezbollah positions in Lebanon that have been met with counterfire from Israel, but in the scheme of things, fairly quiet. So, you know, the majority of military age men across the country are deployed right now. It's a, a massive call up of reservists, over 300,000. Um, and they're mostly deployed in the South right now, massed at the border with Gaza, waiting for the anticipated ground offensive to begin. And so the, the, feeling, I think, is that um, in, a, in a sense, the, the real war hasn't started yet. Right, right. Um, well, I want to get into the um, both the strategic and political aspects of this in just a second. But um, just to foreshadow what we're going to spend some time talking about, which is information war, um, anyone who has spent any time on social media, and indeed, probably across mainstream media as well, will have been hit by a barrage of claims from both sides, um, which I think in all cases, demand a heavy dose of skepticism um, because of the, the the freighted nature of this conflict in particular. Um, though, of course, information war is a feature of of all wars. Um, probably, and I think probably the most grotesque one has been the story of forty beheaded babies, um, which has been endlessly debated to the extent that it's almost become a kind of mimetized reference, almost without a referent. Um, like as if we were discussing thirty to fifty feral hogs or something like that, and it's. Um, Obviously, I don't, want, I don't want to kind of make light of the grotesqueness of it, but what do you feel are the stakes of this claim and kind of similar claims related to it uh, in this conflict? I mean, I think the stakes of the claim are the moral conscience of the people who are uh, gleefully participating in the debate around it. I don't think it means anything at all for Israel's war with Hamas. It's completely irrelevant in terms of Israel's war with Hamas. You know, the the debate around this is uh, a debate being carried out largely by people who are um, spectators in a kind of confused and often deluded position vis-a-vis their relationship with the active participants in the warfare and the fighting going on here. So there's no question, um, none at all, that there was the deliberate slaughter of civilians, including babies, including babies who were burned to death and uh, mutilated. There's zero actual controversy around this. You know, Hamas has now um, taken the position that uh, in a public statement that it's now blaming the the slaughter of civilians on, um, you know, non-Hamas Gazans who infiltrated into Israel after the initial attack and carried this out without the approval of Hamas. So they, they're actually blaming this on Palestinians who um, apparently acted without their authority. But of course, you know, there's all of this live streamed video, which was um, really the sort of heart of the, the initial information war, which was to gather all this footage, upload it to platforms like Telegram. Um, the, the, so it's sort of propaganda of the deed of, of some sort. Um, I mean, the yeah, it's propaganda of the it. deed. I mean, the interesting question is what it accomplishes. And this is the, this is the sort of riddle of, of information war, the deeper riddle of information war, which is that we all feel it happening. And yet there's a, a tremendous, profound confusion about what it actually accomplishes. Let me come back to that in a second. Though. The, To your point about the fact that there's propaganda on both sides, which is, of course, unquestionably true, is true in all wars. Um, And, uh, you know, it it is certainly true now as it ever was. The 
the way that it's being framed, this debate over um, the, the manner in which children were murdered is being framed as if it is a debunking of a claim propagated by the Israelis to draw the U.S. into a wider war. That's my reading mm. of the kind of political context of the claim. And that is a, a kind of interpretation which is um, has historical resonances, obviously, because there are past conflicts in which claims about civilian atrocities were used to sort of gin up enthusiasm for war. And, and um, so there are obvious historical resonances, but it totally misreads the political relationship of the moment between the U.S. and Israel. And it also um, misreads the way that this claim was propagated. The way that this claim was propagated was that a, with a tremendous public appetite for atrocity, which is, after all, why Hamas would spread this this video as quickly mm. as it could, right? Um, because they knew that they would, in the immediate term, at least benefit from doing that. So in an environment where there's a, a, a tremendous public appetite for atrocity, the most lurid claim rises to the top. So th this got the most attention because it was the most grotesque. And... Um, and, and then it traps people in a, in a, a sort of bizarre and really kind of uh, debased debate about um, the, the political uses of um, murdered children, which yeah. I, I wish to um, not extricate myself from because... Um, I don't think that claims made during wartime are in need of interrogation. They obviously are, but because this particular claim has so obviously uh, become a, a sort of shorthand um, for what is not really like a, a honest questioning um, about, uh, you know, what is going on in this war, it's become a sort of accusation of sorts, which is... Uh, that the the claim itself originated out of a contrived attempt to gin up public enthusiasm for um, some kind of attack on Hamas or to draw the U.S. in. That's how I read it. And uh, yeah, that's how I read it. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to come on to um, U.S.-Israeli relations in, in a second because you've written on this, actually a piece um, well before the um, recent um, conflagration actually um, erupted and then um, want to interrogate that a little bit further. Um, but before that, um, I think probably have to deal with a couple of other questions before that. Firstly, um, what's your account of why Hamas attacked now and in the way it did? Um, we've already talked a little bit, I guess, about their aim and kind of the propagation of image of, of atrocity, but um, more broadly, politically and geopolitically, why do you think it attacked now? I think that the reading of this as being related to the possible Saudi-Israeli rapprochement is correct, broadly speaking, um, but that what we're really talking about is a... Uh, you know, an, an Iran-backed push to disrupt that. And the relationship between Hamas and Iran um, is not in question. 
what is in question and what hasn't, I think, satisfactorily been worked out yet is the level of Iranian involvement in the operational planning of this attack. And there have been a number of stories. I think the initial Wall Street Journal story that included the detail about the, the planning session in Beirut prior to the attack might have gotten out over its skis a bit. It's not clear that that particular right. meeting took place. There's no question, however, that the material support, the weapons, uh, not only the, the funding for the weapons, but the engineering um, for the weapons and the tactical and operational uh, training for this came from Iran uh, and in some cases from the IRGC and in some cases from Hezbollah. The tactics that Hamas used are essentially Hezbollah tactics, um, the, you know, the the way in which this was immediately folded into a, a sort of broader, um, you know, Iranian push to disrupt the Saudi-Israeli rapprochement is very clear. And then to to just follow up that that initial Wall Street Journal piece, I think, you know, some of those details might have been off, but there are a whole number of subsequent pieces that make it very clear that there was prior coordination. Um, for this. And, you know, Hamas was planning this, I think, for a minimum of six months prior to carrying it out. This is a fairly complex combined arms operation. I mean, this is not something you can pull off quickly, and it's certainly not something they could pull off without financial and material support. Um, so do you think they've been successful? I mean, it's early days, but in potentially disrupting the Saudi-Israeli rapprochement? I think it remains to be seen. Look, they were spectacularly successful in the initial attack. There's just no question. This was a stunning victory for Hamas in the early rounds. There's no question about that. Um, And the question now, Israel has had uh, stunning, uh, you know, sort of, tactical losses, tactical defeats before that it's converted into operational and strategic victories. I I think there's reason to believe that could be the case here, but we simply don't know yet. And the U.S. position vis-a-vis the Israelis, to be clear, which I think is almost universally misread. I mean, people see these statements from the Biden administration and and interpret these statements of support, which rhetorically, discursively are very powerful. Biden's speech was uh, very well received in Israel. You know, people interpret it as a, you know, a gesture of um, true support and discursively it was. But the U.S. strategic structural position in the Middle East is to support the rise of Iranian power as a kind of counterweight to the power of its traditional allies, key strategic allies in the region, Israel and Saudi Arabia, such that um, the U.S. could begin to pull out of the region more. And they're explicit about all of this, right? So the immediate U.S. policy background to the attack was uh, the reopening of uh funding to Hamas, right, which uh, another round just got approved by Anthony Blinken a month ago. It was the release of people are saying $6 billion. It's much more than $6 billion to Iran. And it was pressuring the Israelis to accept uh, a new, uh, in Blinken's words, you know, uh, integration with Hezbollah 
in Lebanon. So in other words, the larger strategic picture here is that um, the U.S. is funding and supporting both sides of this. And the uh, deployment of the aircraft carriers, the Mediterranean here, which is interpreted as this, you know, incredible show of support for Israel is as much to, you know, signal to Israel, you can't go too far with this. We won't allow it. Not that we would fire on you with the aircraft carriers, but in other words, the aircraft carriers are, are there to constrain Israel's actions because if Israel goes too far, according to U.S. strategic objectives, um, the Americans will be able to say, um, we were there, we could have backed them up and, and uh, you know, prevented this war from getting out of hand, but they were too bloodthirsty or whatever, and they just kept going. So Hamas clearly saw uh, an opportunity to reassert its uh, sort of it, 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 the primacy of its claims, um, which, you know, I, I've seen Hamas's uh, larger orientation continuously misrepresented, including by critics. One critic, you know, was saying the left shouldn't support Hamas because they're a blood and soil nationalist organization. That's not true at all. They're not a blood and soil nationalist organization, right? They're a they're a, a pan-Islamist organization mm-hmm. derived from the Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood, the Ikhwan. They're in this strategic alliance now with Iran, which is, you know, a bit, a bit of a strain Awkward, insofar, yeah, as, yeah. Uh, in, insofar as they regard uh, the Shias as uh, heretics worthy of death. But uh, nevertheless, the, and the, the leadership of Hamas is very clear on this point. They've never, um, they've never actually wavered on it at all. You know, uh, Mahmoud Al Zahar was just made a statement, um, you know, just recently uh, about you know essentially placing the entire planet, Christians and Jews, under the dominion of Muslims, and and that's ultimately the goal. So it's not it's it's not a a blood and soil nationalist organization. It's not a nationalist organization. Um, but they saw an opportunity. They pressed the opportunity. The the one other thing I would add to that in terms of the strategic picture that I think is being lost here is that that did not occur in the context of a historical inattention to the Palestinian cause, which is you know something that I have also seen people claim. On whose, sorry, that, that claim is that who has... So there, there is a claim that the, the Palestinians had been written out of the political agenda of the United States as it was now pressing for this Saudi-Israeli um, pact, and that therefore the Hamas carried out this you know, spectacular savagery of this attack was a sort of sign of, of how desperate they were to reassert their political claims, Right. What that leaves out, and again, I, I do think it's correct to read this as related to the Saudi-Israeli pact and the threat that posed to uh, Iran and therefore also Iran's clients like Hamas. But what that leaves out is that the position of Hamas and, and the Palestinians at large under the Biden administration had been become more salient than it was under the Trump administration, considerably more salient, right? So if this was an attack out of a desperation at a loss of political significance, one would have expected it to occur 
during the Trump administration when the Palestinians really were marginalized, when they really were sort of being sidelined. But since Biden has taken office, that has been reversed to a considerable extent. Payments have started again to the Palestinian Authority, which had been cut off um, based on the fact that they were going to, you know, the, the uh, pay, terrorist payments, essentially. Uh, so that's the immediate context, actually, is it's not that the the um, that Hamas had any reasonable expectation under the Biden administration of achieving its goals, right, which, again, are Muslim Brotherhood goals, so mm-hmm. nothing the Biden administration was going to hand them. But in relative terms, they had been getting more funding, goals. more yeah. attack. Yes, yes. No, I mean, that's, that's very useful. I mean, even beyond the like specific nature of what you discussed, but also turning our attention to the politics and strategy of, of the matter, because I think that gets um, missed out in a lot of discussions, both of Israel, but especially of, of Hamas, um, where it's treated as um, kind of almost like spontaneous rage or something like that, um, rather than an organization which has its aims and goals and um, tactics and so on that it, it considers. Um, so... Uh, Turning to the, I guess the, the the Israeli reaction. Obviously, I mean, my read of it, unless I'm sorely mistaken, a huge intelligence failure, um, and one that leads to consequences for um, both intelligence forces in Israel as well as uh, political leadership. So, how so far um, has this impacted on on Netanyahu and his chances even of, of political survival? He has no chance. He's uh, it's over for him. Um, so wow. you know, look, there's a. A war government now, it's not going to happen overnight, but uh, but this is the end for Netanyahu. And if he has any honor, he'll recognize that and resign um, immediately at the first opportunity. That's the only sane, honorable thing left for him to do. In terms of the intelligence failure, it um, was a catastrophic intelligence failure, but moreover, it was an operational failure. And what I mean by that is that uh, look, I'll, I'll first I'll give you the the sort of technical distinction between information and intelligence, right? So in military terms, information you could think of as data, essentially, and you know anything in the world, as we've learned, you know, to to our horror, I would say we've learned that literally everything in the world can be converted into data and, and yeah. simulacra, and that's all information. Intelligence, on the other hand, drives a commander's decision. So when we're talking about an intelligence failure, we're not only talking about a a failure to collect relevant information. I think the Israelis probably collected a lot of the relevant information. That information was not converted into a form, intelligence, to drive a commander's decision or, or a political leader's decision um, such that this could have been prevented. And the reasons for that, uh, there's a very good article in Tablet about this. On, uh, the Soviet term for it was the conceptia, meaning the sort of the, uh, the, the gestalt, if you will, the, the conceptual understanding. And the conceptual understanding, which the Israelis, as much as the Americans, both sides had believed this, was that Hamas was a kind of rational actor that could be incentivized through standard carrot and stick means um, to act as a, you know, hostile, belligerent organization. Of course, they were never going to give that up entirely because if they did, they would sacrifice their political legitimacy. But, you know, in in the realm of a sort of 
acceptable degree of rocket attacks on Israel and occasional um, more violent skirmishes, the group had essentially been contained. And this was explicitly the view both in Washington, where it was expressed by figures like uh, Robert Malley, and in uh, Israel, where it was expressed repeatedly by Netanyahu, but also you know, by Benny Gantz, and was a sort of bipartisan assumption. And you know, the assumption played out in a number of ways. You know, the Netanyahu government, uh, it, you know, deliberately released more money from Qatar to Hamas. They uh, approved the, you know, the increase in the number of um, work permits going to Gazans to allow them into Israel, some of whom worked on the kibbutzes in the south where civilians were massacred and and who likely provided some of the intelligence that facilitated that. And so that the that that all goes into what you might call the intelligence failure. The other side of this is that the IDF, which is um, you know developed a deserved reputation as one of the best militaries in the world, completely failed to exercise its most basic duty here in um, protecting Israelis inside their own homeland. Now, I should say that they also both soldiers and armed Israeli civilians killed a lot of Hamas fighters. It looks like about 1,500 were killed inside of Israel. There were probably twice that many involved in the attack, though some of them may have been sort of opportunistic fighters who came in through breaches in the border fence after the initial planned attack. But all of which is to say, you know, there are um, I, I don't, uh, you know, there, I, I don't think that that has been sufficiently conveyed in some of the kind of uh, morality tale rendition of what occurred, where um, you know you have one one camp that sees the uh, Jews as pure victims, another camp that sees the Palestinians as pure victims. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this this was not uh, analogies to the Holocaust are. are missing entirely that, um, you know, the, the citizens of Israel, the Israeli army, the army of the Jewish state fought back and, and killed a lot of Hamas fighters. So, um, so what all of that amounts to, however, is still the single largest operational failure in Israel's history, yeah. one that, so, that will absolutely cost Netanyahu his career. I, just briefly, um, again, early days, but given the, that it was a failure, an intelligence failure and a failure also of the IDF, does that um, change the way it is perceived in Israeli society? Um, or it, yes. Or is, yeah. I mean, did, did how could it not? Evidence of that? Yeah, of course. I mean, how could it possibly not? Um, that, But the thing is, Israeli society is the IDF. So it, it's not as if there is a professional military that stands apart from the society, the same people who are appalled by what happened are, are now mobilized in this mass mobilization of reservists. What you have, however, is a sort of a leadership class and a ruling class. And the failures in the thinking and assumptions of that ruling class, which would be familiar to um, people in other uh, you know, advanced post-industrial countries, 
an over-reliance on technology, a, a over-determined belief in the rationality of hostile actors, a sort of game theory approach to um, wildly unpredictable human interactions, you know, this sort of technocratic managerial mindset, which unfortunately has infected Israel as well. Um, that That's the leadership class. But now that you've had this mass mobilization, people see themselves as the IDF at this point. Now it's a people's army. It's, it's no longer just the sort of leadership class's army. All that being said, when this is over, when the fighting is over, whenever that is, and it's very hard to say right now, um, but whenever it is, there, there will be in the tradition of the you know past Israeli sort of defeats and strategic um, disasters, there will be a searching kind of after action report period. And, um, and they ought to clean house in a lot of places. There, there are people whose careers should be over, many, many people whose careers should be over because of this. And I imagine that will be the case. And if that doesn't occur, it's a very bad sign, in my opinion. Would you be able to lay out the extent to which you think this is a pivotal moment in Israeli society? Um, I don't think anyone's doubting that it is, but um, on what historic scale would you put this? That's impossible to answer until the active fighting is over. Um, okay. So the, the pivot depends on whether Israel can now achieve a strategic victory. And let me define that. Yeah, so I wanted Punishing. to ask you about that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What is, what, what's the goal there? What, what do you see actually is likely to happen? It, the goal is simple to define. The goal is the easiest part to define. That is to restore peace for Israelis inside their homeland. That's the goal of war. Is, uh, and we have uh, lost sight of that in you know, the wars that I participated in as an American soldier were wars of nation building and, and partnership. And, uh, you know, President Bush famously wanted to remake the Middle East and we wouldn't win until we remade Middle Eastern countries in, our, in the image of America and, and provided them with democracy. So that, that was a, a Wilsonian uh, Woodrow Wilson, you know, Wilsonian version of warfare as a democratic crusade. And then Obama sort of inverted the uh, symbolic valences, but under the same sign. So then Obama comes in and says in Afghanistan, which is now the good war, that we shouldn't speak of victory because victory makes people think of the Japanese surrender in World War II, and that's now antiquated and obsolete. And our mo in our postmodern wars don't work that way. And now we're going to remake a justification Afghan for civil war effectively, right? It's precisely what it is. It's a it is a license to print money for the military-industrial complex. It is a. Uh, uh, a, a form of perpetual immunity for the generals and the political leaders who, by declaring these wars postmodern, declaring victory obsolete, make it so that they can continually lose, uh, you know, kill uh, hundreds of thousands of people, sacrifice American soldiers' lives, accomplish nothing, and then walk away from it scot-free because, after all, victory is obsolete. But victory is not obsolete. 
So you, you and, think this? Do you think the situation is different? I mean, I think a lot of critics would say, well, there is no victory for Israel here either. It can hit back and make sure that Palestinians incur more casualties um, by whatever order of magnitude you want to say um, relative to to Israeli casualties, um, but that that doesn't lead to um, actual safety for Israelis in, in in within Israel. It's the measure of peace inside the homeland. That's victory. Right, not permanent peace, not absolute peace, but uh, you know a, a, a peace dividend, and the way that that is operationally accomplished in this case is by destroying the tunnel network for one thing. Right, so mm. the the uh, people who believe that uh, Gaza is nothing but an open air prison, and uh, you know, is it, it, it see Gaza as a site of um, pure suffering and, and pure Israeli aggression need to account for the tens of millions of dollars that were expended over the past decade. This is aid money that was provided to Gaza that was redirected into the construction of a fortified underground tunnel network, which is, by the way, where hostages are being kept right now, where the rockets are. And, um, so the destruction of that tunnel network and effectively the demilitarization of um, Hamas infrastructure in Gaza is a worthwhile, uh, worthwhile operational goal that will make the the it will not only make Israelis safer inside of Israel. It will, in the long run, cost fewer Palestinian lives than a perpetual form of warfare in which there's some kind of premature ceasefire imposed on the Israelis now by the supposedly, um, you know, humanitarian minded international community so that we can repeat this cycle again in a few years. Uh, that That's how you get a, uh, a just a, a wood chipper. No, the, the Israelis need to destroy the Hamas military infrastructure. And that mission, that operational goal looks as of right now, like it will resemble what the US did in Mosul to uproot ISIS from Mosul, but will likely cost far fewer civilian lives than the US mission, US joint US-Iraqi mission in Mosul did, which killed about 10 million civilians, leveled the city. It was just you know, massive airstrikes. And most of that's not even getting into what happened in Raqqa, uh, you know, in the Syrian side of the border. Mm. Um, so I, I, to, be, to be clear, right, I don't exult in warfare. I don't wish to see Palestinians punished in retribution. Not only do I think that that's morally indefensible, I think that it's worse than morally indefensible in the case of warfare because it will prolong suffering on both sides by preempting the possibility of an actual operational victory, which is the only moral justification for warfare to begin with, right? So the bloodshed for the sake of bloodshed is precisely not the point. And, you know, there are some troubling signs to me on the Israeli side, this, you know, sort of, there have been some you know, really stupid, despicable statements by some Israeli politicians. Now, 
those statements, I think, are, are uh, you know, about, you know, that uh, one politician just said there is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Obviously, there's a humanitarian crisis in Gaza, right? There are something like, I think it's fewer than 2 million now, but there are over a million people who are in this very small strip of land. And um, obviously, that's going to create a humanitarian crisis. That's what happens in wars. I don't think that that's uh, a reason to say that Israel cannot prosecute a war against Hamas. I mean, I know it's not a reason to say Israel can't prosecute a war against Hamas to secure itself, but these sorts of, in my opinion, you know, uh, morally indefensible statements from some Israeli politicians that, that of course, get seized on by a sort of uh, global uh, messaging machinery that's uh, already perceives Israel as a, a permanent aggressor in this conflict. They're not only morally stupid, they're, they're bad signs because you don't, in war, uh, you, you don't make maximalist claims, right? Mm. You, uh, that's a dangerous thing to do. Um, what you want to do at, you know, when you're prosecuting a war is to keep your enemy off balance, um, keep, frankly, interlopers off balance as well. That, that is like third party countries looking to interfere while you identify soberly um, achievable essential goals and then commit the necessary resources to pursue them. So I, I maybe ask you to comment on a video which is I think kind of gone sort of viral. Uh, it's an interview with John J. Mearsheimer, the realist international relations professor, um, who paints the picture for Israel as a somewhat of a catch twenty two, uh, where it will be, in his view, difficult to eradicate Hamas if they need if they want to do that. There'll need to be a land invasion. Uh, if they succeed in in eradicating Hamas, a new group will just replace them. If they don't. Uh, if Israel doesn't mount a land invasion, Hamas persists, and or Israel could just keep bombing Gaza, but that just kills more long-suffering Palestinian civilians and doesn't achieve any military goals. So anyway, this is a bit of a catch twenty-two. Um, what do you? What do you, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think that, that that's right in a lot of ways. Um, you cannot destroy the tunnel networks that I described. Can't be destroyed in airstrikes. Um, they need to be. Uh, basically, you know, disassembled piecemeal through controlled detonations underground that bring them down from within, basically. Um, so, so that requires a ground offensive and the rescue of hostages requires a ground offensive and the um, killer capture of Hamas leadership requires a ground offensive. So, yes, it requires a ground offensive. Ground offensive is, you know, possibly the single most dangerous um, form of modern warfare. That's why you besiege cities before beginning a ground offensive into a city, because, uh, well, I, I'll, I'll give you a, like an operational consideration. The standard, what's called the 
basically the the attack ratio for the U.S. military is three to one, meaning you never mount an attack unless you have three times as many attackers as there are enemy defenders. And the reason why is you don't want to be fighting one on one, right? Like the the because there's always a, a advantage to the defender. There's typically an advantage to the defender in that case, and because you're trying to achieve fire superiority. So three to one is the standard ratio. In urban warfare, it goes up to five to one. It goes up to five to one, not only because the urban defender has such a decisive advantage, but also because you know that you are going to lose so many of your own soldiers that you need to increase your manpower reserves to essentially compensate for the expected losses on your own side, the expected Mm -hmm. uh, deaths on your own side. So it's a treacherous form of warfare. Uh, It's one that, you know, Israel has been reluctant to engage in, in Gaza in the past. In 2014, the ground operations did not last very long before there was essentially a, you know, a withdrawal from Gaza under cover of, under air cover. Um, Netanyahu, particularly is adverse to this, averse to this. Um, So, you know, I don't think this is something that the Israeli political or or military leadership relish. And I think that the the Mearsheimer point about the difficulties are correct. However, and I should say for historical context, I'm pretty sure that Mearsheimer also wrote an essay in foreign policy saying that the U.S. would have to make its peace with ISIS rule in Mosul. Um, and that the U.S. ought to establish diplomatic relations with ISIS in Mosul because it would be impossible to militarily defeat ISIS in Mosul. Somebody should look that up. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure you can find that article on foreign policy. And I was just mentioning a moment ago that the real precedent for what's going on, the real historical analogy is the U.S. operation to destroy ISIS in Mosul and to liberate Mosul from ISIS. And that was a devastating, uh, devastating uh, uh, on both sides, uh, particularly, you know, there were not, U.S. was mostly in a sort of overwatch and air cover role, but the Iraqi civilian casualties, Iraqi military casualties were very high. And that's the nature of this kind of warfare. But Mosul is no longer under the rule of ISIS. ISIS was defeated in Mosul and um, Mearsheimer was wrong about that. And I I think the same applies here. Okay. So um, I want to turn briefly before we talk about disinformation um, about an article that you wrote earlier this year with Leah Leibovitz calling for the ending of U.S aid to Israel. Um, counterintuitively, I think you say Israel ends up sacrificing far more value in return for the nearly $4 billion it annually receives from Washington. Um, I think this maybe people having heard you speak now might be a little bit surprised by that or find some of that, that claim at least somewhat counterintuitive. So maybe you could explain um, why you think the US should stop funding Israel. And indeed, if you if you still hold that view, I don't know. I absolutely hold that view now more than ever. I mean, my argument was not that the U.S. should end its alliance with Israel or should not provide arms to a a key strategic ally in war. My argument was that the U.S. should end the aid relationship with Israel, which fosters a dependency 
you know, father, turns Israel into a kind of satrapy within a larger system of client states managed within a U.S. empire. And I don't think that's in either U.S. interests or in Israel's interests. I don't want, look, I'm a, I live in Israel now. My family is in Israel. Um, I love it here. I'm happy to be here, but I'm an American. You know, I moved here when I was 40 years old. I fought in two wars for America. My formative experiences were all in America. And so I, I was making an argument that I, I think um, comes from a, you know, a, a sense of um, b- belief in the natural, national interests on both sides. So to start, it's in the U.S. national interest to end its, uh, end its approach to foreign policy as a way of managing clients throughout the world. That system benefits nobody but the ruling class. And it is set up precisely to benefit the ruling class, largely to provide energy resources to the ruling class. There's a very clear material interest underlying all of this. And and it benefits the military-industrial complex in the U.S., and and it benefits the um, politically captured energy interests and you know, by the way, without getting off onto a whole, you know, sort of thing that would require an episode in its own right, that's what the Hunter Biden laptops are actually about. You know, the, the information operation was to make people believe that the Hunter Biden laptops were about, you know, pornography or hookers or coke or illegal guns or Russian disinfo or whatever. The thing that actually comes out if you study what's on the Hunter Biden laptops, which nobody, including Hunter Biden's lawyers, even, uh, you know, even they now acknowledge that it's all authentic, everything that's on them. The business deals being described that being described there are all about energy. They're about liquid natural gas. They're about, you know, the Chinese energy consortium, Burisma, obviously. So. Anyway, the, the, the U.S. needs to pursue its national interests, which is why I, the last thing I want to happen, and I don't believe there's any chance of it happening, would be for the U.S. to put boots on the ground in this war in any way at all, I think would be a disaster. should not happen. You know, the U.S. has never put boots on the ground in any of Israel's wars, and it shouldn't now. Um, it should, you know largely stay out of things, stop funding Iran, stop funding Qatar, and push for American interests, which are to secure the immediate release of um, U.S. hostages. That's the the obvious thing that America needs to be doing right now. And, you know, the largest U.S. air base in the world is located in Qatar, right? Which is also, by the way, where CENTCOM, Central Command, is headquartered. Okay, who else is in Qatar? Well, first of all, the banking system through which the Iranian money is funneled. So when we we you know lift sanctions, we release six billion dollars to Iran. It comes through Qatar, and Ismail Hania and uh, the Hamas leadership um, who planned this. They're also in Qatar. So we have leverage. The U.S. has leverage it can exercise without getting drawn into a war. And and my contention is that the sort of weakness and wobbliness of the Biden administration, rather than preventing a, a 
cataclysmic escalation, which is a reasonable possibility at this point, contributes to it. The, the weaker the U.S. looks, the higher the probability of that. Now, looking strong is not a matter of just dropping bombs. Looking strong is a matter of demonstrating a clear understanding of core national interests and then applying the strength to accomplish them. Um, so that's on the U.S. side. On the Israel side, the Israelis have gotten sucked into a relationship with the U.S. where they're a kind of protectorate. And as a kind of, now, they're not actually a sort of technical protectorate, obviously. They're not, but a kind of quasi-satrapy, right, where they accept all this money and in return for accepting all this money, they then have to fit themselves into the larger strategic goals dictated by the U.S. Now, there are all sorts of cases where, you know, in a particular incident, they might break out of that. You know, Netanyahu might do something that uh, pisses Biden off or demonstrates independence or whatever. But in the larger sense, they've been domesticated and brought to heel, which is exactly what the U.S. does with countries all over the world or attempts to do. So it's, it's not in any sense unique to Israel. But Israel can't afford that. And it has other very devastating consequences because it also it inculcates a culture within the Israeli ruling class and political class that comes to identify its own values and core interests with what leads to advancement in beltway social circles. And so the, right. the sort of Tel Aviv ruling class comes to look at uh, you know think tank appointments in the Atlantic Council or, or whatever, the, you know, the various sort of social equivalents of that as being um, both the conferring ultimate status and being the ultimate reward. And aid fosters all of that. And aid distorts the relationship because it makes the relationship this one of sort of dependency rather than being one in which the overlapping national interests of the two countries dictate the ways in which they um, shape their alliance. And those overlapping interests are considerable, right? So if you took away aid, it wouldn't break apart U.S.-Israeli partnership. It would actually sort of narrow it and strengthen it at the same time. And look, I just, I view the, I view this sort of an imperial management system has both a moral abomination and a uh, utter strategic failure. And the strength of the U.S. for various reasons, historical, geographic, economic, have allowed the U.S. to absorb tremendous defeats, right, that the mm. Americans have suffered terribly for, but the ruling class has gotten richer from. Yeah, And um, so the, the argument for ending aid is an argument sort of that accounts for both sides. Yeah, very good. Um, yeah, there's one neat line in there, which I like. Let, let American Jews who care about being Jewish focus on observance and learning their people's history instead of pimping for Lockheed Martin. That was nicely put. So uh, turning to disinformation um, and maybe trying to do a segue between uh, questions of uh, Israel and Palestine and uh, your long essay on, on disinformation. 
there's headlines uh, this week, just to cite one, for example, Israel, Gaza, misinformation is flooding social media. The European Union is demanding big tech walk the walk and fix it. Um, and headlines like that are um, kind of everywhere. And I think the I'm, I'm a little bit shocked, even the degree to which I think broadly, we just accept that as a as a new configuration, as a, as, as a reality that we live with, that um, the state, whether it's, um, you know, kind of entity like the EU or, or the US federal state, uh, and its relations, quite close relations with um, corporates, corporates, particularly big tech, um, are so tightly enmeshed that we kind of just take it for granted that they might, you know, knock on the door and go, hey, actually, would you mind fixing this thing? Something's going on in the public square. Would you mind just clamping down on that? And then we, we just kind of take that as as red, as kind of normal. Um, and it's extraordinary. And so your uh, essay, I think, does a very good job in accounting for some of the ways that we got here. Um, and so I want to I wanna maybe ask you if you can recount this a little bit. Um, listeners will know uh, about, obviously, and be critical of things like Russiagate or claims of election hacking and so on. Um, but your essay, I think, depicts a much more important transformation than just something like the U.S. Democrats politicking, although that no doubt is part of it. Um, the war on disinformation, you write, has become the great moral crusade of our time um, and one in which its advocates see it as a, a whole of society problem that requires a whole of society solution. So maybe to start off, who, can you tell us who, who, who said that um, and what, um, what accounts, I guess, for, um, for, for this mindset? Yeah, the, the whole of society problem that requires a whole of society solution is a catchphrase that's repeated through numerous U.S. documents, uh, notably from CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is a sub-agency under the Department of Homeland Security. And it was the one that led what was known as the Election Integrity Partnership, which was the massive censorship complex and consortium that, you know, censored something like 22 million tweets during the 2020 election, uh, took whole categories, what they bundled together as narrative categories. So for instance, Hunter Biden's laptops, which we now know to have been 100% authentic and the reporting on them, those were bundled together as disinformation categories censored en masse during the 2020 election under the auspices of this consortium of four different organizations three of them being universities, Stanford being the most important, and then a company called Graphica, which was funded originally by the uh, DARPA, which is like a you know, D Department of Defense sort of um, startup laboratory. Uh, Graphica was originally created as a counter ISIS messaging company, right? So during the sort of first phase of the great information wars, when the U.S. Department of Defense was first spinning all this stuff up, the idea was ISIS has its social media campaign, we'll create a counter-ISIS social media campaign, counter-propaganda. And that's how a, a company like Graphica got funded and much of the counter-disinformation complex on the military and counterinsurgency side comes from sort of similar efforts. Um, so anyway, so the, the Election Integrity Partnership, which again was created under CISA, which is under the Department of Homeland Security, is exactly the instantiation of that aim for a whole of society response to a whole of society problem, because it brings together a government agency, 
a university, a private entity into this sort of fully nationalized, fully mobilized counter disinformation program, which amounts to a program not only of mass censorship, but of de-democratization, right? Because Mm. ultimately what this is doing is stealing sovereignty from individuals, stealing sovereignty from American citizens, investing it into these opaque technocratic, bureaucratic institutions, which are rapidly getting automated. Um, you know, yeah. sort of much of this is now going to be driven by AI. And the coda to that particular story is that the election integrity partnership, this you know huge enterprise built up to protect Americans, protect what the head of CISA, Jen Easterly, referred to as the cognitive infrastructure Right, the cognitive infrastructure in the U.S. was being threatened by disinformation, and Easterly, you know, literally says that it's dangerous if people get to choose their own facts. So now we have this massive censorship uh, consortium to protect us from the dangers inherent in choosing our own facts. That whole thing gets immediately repurposed after the election into the virality project. So the election integrity partnership. Immediately, this, this be the 2016 spun. election. No, the 2020 election. Right. So the the election integrity partnership, because all of this happens in response to the 2016 election, right? So the election of Trump is what sets in motion the great moral crisis, the moral panic I, I, actually, that allows let, for this let, let, to let, occur. Let me, let me interrupt yeah. a second, actually, because I mean, I, I will let readers and I will encourage readers to go and read uh, your essay. It's long, but it's, um, I think, essential. Uh, it details a process um, of ratcheting up of these powers, um, which obviously have some important inflection points. Um, but I think it maybe is a little bit different to something like the um, global war on terror post 9-11, where there's a huge amount of powers which are signed into law um, in fairly immediate um, time frame after the attacks. And this, there seems to be a kind of a ratcheting up. This thing just kind of grows. Um, and you end up with phrases like, as, as you say, cognitive infrastructure, which just sort of wash over you when you hear that, because you're like, I don't know what that really means. And if you start to kind of untangle the words, um, and it, they're Orwellian nature, you realize kind of how, quite how frightening that is. Anyway, I interrupted you because I maybe um, would ask you if you could to... Um, Talk us through or maybe give us some highlights of some of the, the pivotal moments, because I think that you talk about the 2014 um, Russian invasion of Crimea, Crimea um, and the, the escalation of the conflict there in 2014. Um, late Obama period signing of new powers, um, possibly under the impact of uh, fear of Trump, um, the Trump election itself, as you say, which is which is really pivotal and then COVID. So um, those are obviously various various kind of points of uh, uh, pivotal points in, in the ratcheting up of these powers and this creation of this infrastructure. Um, but maybe you could give us some highlights, I think, of, of where things um, start. Yeah, so 2014 is crucial. There are four events that occur in 2014 that consolidate this view of information warfare is now spilling over from the battlefield into the political domain and from the political domain directly into people's households via social media. I mentioned three of those events in the essay. Those are the Euromaidan uh, protests in Ukraine and the, the Russian response, Russians invasion of Crimea and the ISIS campaign in Iraq, all three of which are 
hot wars or hot conflicts, um, e- even in the case of Euromaidan, there's fighting um, that also involve these large scale social media driven messaging and influence operations. Um, and, you know, Twitter is still fairly new at this time. So there's a, a sort of a, an energy to this and a, a newness to it that really captivates people. The fourth thing, which I don't mention in the essay, but I think is also very consequential, is Gamergate, which is this very bizarre, very sort of Byzantine drama that unfolds in America in which uh, video game players go to war with the media. And it's this sort of like just a collision of signifiers and um, really uh, pure, pure culture war phenomena, but yeah. pure culture war phenomena that becomes extraordinarily significant because it convinces a influential segment of the U.S. media class that they are under attack from a extremist insurgency. And the people who they interpret as an extremist insurgency are basically non-progressive uh, video game players. And these are not these are not reactionaries per se. It's not the alt-right per se. It's just people who haven't been fully indoctrinated into the discursive vocabulary of elite progressivism, right? And so it seems like this hyper-insular, totally inconsequential thing on one level, but on another level, it's actually quite significant because it occurs at the same time as these other three things in Ukraine, Crimea, and ISIS, which together get lumped under the banner of hybrid warfare. Hybrid warfare actually comes from, originally the term is first applied to the 2006 uh, war between Israel and Lebanon, right? That's where the word, the phrase originates. And it refers to this sort of a war that combines conventional and unconventional operations, uh, sort of militia groups with uniformed groups with messaging campaigns um, with cyber operations, all of it sort of thrown together. So hybrid warfare, which becomes the sort of dominant framework for the NATO defense establishment starting in 2014. And if you look at the NATO um, colloquiums over 2015, 2016, if you look at the white papers that get pu- that get published, the doctrine that gets put out, it's all about hybrid warfare. Everybody is talking about hybrid warfare. And, and in particular, they're talking about the power of information operations and specifically influence operations carried out over social media. And there develops a view that sees the influence operations, the information operations as determinative of the outcome of physical conflicts. Mm. So the belief develops that whoever dominates the information space wins the war, right? So in in the case of ISIS, they have this incredibly lurid, uh, hyper-violence campaign on Twitter, which really captivates the world's attention. I was writing about this at the time in 2014. I was trying to make sense of it. Um, So I don't stand outside of this in any sense. I was very much sort of part of the spectacle. And so that's the view that develops, right? 
And and in particular, these NATO defense officials get really taken with like the Garamantsov doctrine and fifth generation warfare and these very sort of um, as close as you could get to like the Baudrillardian view. Right. I was, was going to say they're, they're like they're like postmodern true believers, effectively. Though they don't know it, but right. what they miss, what they don't understand, and this is the crucial point, is that the information wars are not determinative of the outcome of the physical conflicts. This is what they get absolutely categorically wrong. And the people who are pushing back on this in the beginning are Central European and Eastern European uh, military officials who are saying, no, no, we don't care what they're tweeting about. We don't care about (laughs) RT, Russia today. Like we need anti-tank weapons and... Um, you know, counter air aircraft batteries, right? Like they, this is sort of where the the early critics are Central and European defense officials and, and uh, you know, Baltic state defense officials who are concerned with, they see the critics because many of them also, even in Central and Eastern Europe, get swept up in this because that's where the money is. You know, if you're the one who's going against hybrid warfare doctrine, you're basically saying, I don't want to participate in the fancy conferences. I don't want to stay at the nice hotel. I don't want to be, I don't want to be part of the conversation, right? So there's not much reward for this, but that's where it originates. And then the next wave of dissent before it comes to America is actually in, again, in, in, it's a, in Czech Republic, in Poland, uh, after these large-scale government counter disinformation apparatuses get installed there before they come to America. It actually starts there. And you have, you know, a whole sort of range of political officials, populists, but also anarchists. And there's a a left-wing anarchist professor whose name I'm forgetting right now, who writes a very persuasive, you know, compelling argument about why it's bad to establish a ministry of truth in the name of combating Russian disinformation. Uh, but this sort of all gets swept aside. And of course, he, like the other critics, ends up getting smeared as a Kremlin apologist and all that. So that's very pivotal. And then the next crucial thing that happens is that Trump wins the nomination in his party and uh, a desperate campaign to discredit him gets underway in both the White House and the Clinton campaign. So simultaneously, the Obama White House and Hillary Clinton's campaign are scrambling to come up with ways to discredit, um, uh, first to try and preempt a Trump win, and also you know, to preempt it by discrediting him. And, and what they settle on is this absurd, fallacious um, Russian collusion claim that reaches its, its absurd apotheosis in the, in the steel dossier with its claims of p-tapes and the like yeah and which as we now know was a piece of opposition research that was paid for by the clinton campaign right they hired out for this um then it gets laundered it gets sent to the fbi so the fbi can then present it you know fraudulently deceptively as if this was the result of u.s intelligence work right so there is a there is an information operation to mislead the American people, both in terms of the content of the Steele dossier, which contains these false claims about Trump-Russia collusion, but also in terms of the origins of the Steele dossier, 
because it gets presented as if it came from a U.S. intelligence agency, right. when in fact it came from Fusion GPS, a private opposition research firm founded by two former Wall Street Journal, journal uh, reporters and from Perkins Coy, which is the sort of Clinton world legal team. Um, and, and finally, what that does is it sets up this uh, act that Obama passes as one of his very last acts in the White House, which is the Countering Foreign Propaganda and Disinformation Act, which empowers an agency called the Global Engagement Center, which had originally been created, just as I was talking about before, to counter ISIS and jihadist messaging. It takes that organization, which is a Counter, you know, counterterrorism, war on terror, counterterrorism influence operation, and it spins it around and turns it into a counter disinformation operation. But because this whole concept of hybrid warfare has convinced people that there are no longer any boundaries between foreign wars and and domestic uh, political arenas, the counter disinformation apparatus that Obama creates immediately gets used as a tool of domestic political censorship, as is in keeping with the theory of hybrid warfare. So, I mean, what two things, I guess, strike me hearing you describe that. The first is that it's fairly par for the course uh, within uh, the intelligence community, the kind of like laundering sources, origins of things, things get kind of cooked up and represented and so on. But it's rare, I guess, that it gets turned inward in, in this way. Um, and secondly, would be the notion that that something which seems kind of as relatively petty as competition between the Democrats and Republicans insofar as um, their um, preferred policies are actually not um, that that different. Um, both, they're both representatives of American capitalism and American ruling class, albeit different wings of it. Um, that, um, that politicking between those um, two parties can actually um, engender the creation of these mass surveillance apparatuses um, Basically, they're scared of Trump, and then all this stuff spins out from that. And it it, it really is remarkable um, the way the way you account for that. So um, maybe just tell us a little bit of what happens, I guess. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think you just power. put your finger on it, which is that Trump was perceived as a, uh, a an intruder, an invader from outside of the ruling class. And, you know, the sort of cheap retort to that is he was rich, right? But it didn't matter. And the, the evidence that what I'm saying is correct is all there in the response to him in 2016. And I documented in the essay, and it's, it's proved out by the fact that Wall Street, for instance, right, completely defects from Trump, right? And so the Wall Street, despite his promises to cut the corporate tax rate, Wall Street goes completely for Hillary Clinton, right? The mm. Fortune 500 companies go completely for Hillary Clinton. The Silicon Valley, people love to talk about Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel was the, like the one exception. Silicon Valley goes entirely for Hillary Clinton. The entire structure of the sort of financial, technological, corporate elite in America is behind Hillary Clinton. Why is that? Because they're scared of what Trump is saying about uh, competition with China which is they've all now invested, uh, including Clinton, in, in partnership with China, despite 
rhetorical posturing that you now get from the Bidens, right? Like the, the American ruling class is totally in bed with, uh, with China. And, and that was the result of the decision to, you know, essentially relocate uh, U.S. manufacturing there initially, which then had a cascade of other consequences. Um, that's part of it, the cutting off the, the inflow of cheap labor. Um, so there are a whole number, and, and I think a, a legitimate sense of Trump as a bore and a vulgarian and uh, an insult to, to our dignified understanding of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like, a, you know, a, a um, you couldn't allow him to stay in the room with the polite people that would, it made a mockery of them. Him standing in the same room as the American ruling class was in every sense existentially intolerable to the American ruling class. And so their reaction, and by the way, and that included the defense establishment, which viewed his promises to, uh, you know, potential threats to withdraw from NATO. Um, people thought that that was, uh, you know, I, I don't think it was all cynical. Like, I, you know, I think that they thought that that could lead to World War Three, or that, I mean, that, that would. It, at any rate, that's a far more serious sounding threat, you think, to uh, the U.S. establishment than Trump just being a bit gauche and grotesque at times but they all went together and so they became inseparable and there was a an inability to disentangle these threads so for instance if you took the nato claims or or would he follow through on article five right which is the uh, mutual defense article in, in in the nato charter which is the sort of essential one um, that couldn't be disentangled from the fact that we knew that he was a racist, who was also a sexual assaulter, who was also, you know, a, a proto-fascist or, you know, whatever. It, it couldn't, there was no ability to evaluate these claims um, critically one by one. It all got swept up into a sort of a mania. And that mania led to a series of incredible power grabs that were justified in the name of containing the exceptional threat that Trump represented. Yeah. So, I mean, now you've got a situation where what goes on on social media is of central concern to the U.S. state uh, to the degree that they're not merely reflexively hoovering up data, as the NSA might do, but specifically interested in specific tweets, posts, etc. that get put out and are uh, active in shutting those down in, in, in censorship. Is that basically what, what's going on? Yeah, but at scale, right? So it's, it's really where this really matters is at scale. Um, but yes, that's exactly it. And it's, it's for two reasons. One reason is because, again, the American ruling class, including both the defense establishment and the political establishment, became convinced that the internet and particular digital network, social media uh, platforms were the crucial battlegrounds, the crucial domains for controlling both warfare and politics, right? That's how they saw it. Why did they see it that way? Because the modern internet as it exists is a giant surveillance platform that was built in no small part by the U.S. security and intelligence agencies who deliberately outsourced their surveillance work to private companies like Google. So the 
commercial war becomes information war primarily and then uh politics becomes treated like war right i mean i guess that's precisely precisely which is why there is no way to address this only through counter censorship measures for instance you have to deal with the political economy you have to deal with the fact that the commercial backbone of the largest corporations in america their profit-making mechanism is surveillance, right? You have to deal with that. If we allow these companies to continue operating as surveillance, uh, you know, as data monopolies and surveillance monopolies, we were we are always going to end up in a place like this. However many restrictions we apply or, or court victories are won to sort of claw back some measure of free expression, if the entire society, the entire commercial underpinning and social substructure of the society is a enormous surveillance trap. You're always going to wind up back here in this kind of situation. Very good. Um, just to conclude, maybe I think one way that you try to characterize the moment, and not just the moment, kind of the structuring of, of things, um, is that Firstly, liberalism has lost any belief in liberty, um, an issue we've discussed at length on this podcast, but also that this that what you have now is this totalizing synergy of state and corporate power in service of a tribal zeal that looks like fascism. But of course, anyone who's not a brainwashed zealot can tell you it's not a fascist country. I think that's very good because it does capture um, the, well, I guess, frankly, the weirdness of, of our times in which aspect you understand why people would reach for terms like fascism but that's really just um because of a lack of deeper understanding of what's actually going on and really a lack of terminology to really understand what's going on um a total um a sort of total capitalism a total state power as well um which is in some ways more totalitarian than um the supposedly totalitarian states of the ussr and nazi germany um how how do we start, I guess, from your your perspective, how do we start um, undoing that to a certain degree? Well, I'm writing a book about this the, for Halt that will be coming out next year. And I'm, I'll save my recommendations for the book because I don't have any right now. And I know that's the sort of thing that book publishers want you to have. So I, I have a <laughs> it's few gotta be months. It's got to be in the subtitle. It's got to be and how right. to fix it. Yeah. I know. I know. And so hopefully I'll get some in there. It's, look, it's just, it's not how I... It's not how I approach this primarily, but I should say I just co-wrote an article with John Robb for Tablet um, in support of the Hollywood strike and making the case that the only way to protect individuals from predatory AI is um, through the kinds of, um, through data ownership, essentially. So I, I think that individuals need to own their data. They need to have some proprietary control over their data. What I mean by that is right now, the entire internet is powered by, the commercial internet is powered by um, data generated by your behaviors, your interactions, your searches, but also your physical interactions with interfaces, surveillance interfaces, interfaces that are capturing your behavior like you know, your, your smart thermometer in your house or whatever. Yeah. All of that data gets fed into these companies. There's an alchemy that's performed. When, when you possess the data, it's valueless, right? The moment it gets to the corporations, all of a sudden there's a monetary value attached to it. So 
that needs to be changed. And the way to change that is to require these companies to pay individuals for the data that they're leeching off of them um, instead of just using these bread and circuses to entice people into these enormous surveillance arenas. The other effect that'll have is right now, there's no disincentive to structuring your company as a massive surveillance trap. That's at all of the incentives except for the fact that you know it's difficult to do because you're competing with the Facebooks and Googles, but, but that's what everybody aspires to. But if you had to pay for this stuff, it would create friction, a structural barrier that would make companies look for more productive things to do instead of just stealing people's data or, or whatever you want to, you know, purloining it or, or uh, however you want to put it. So that's one thing I can think of. But the the immediate task now is simply to describe the reality that has taken shape and which actively conceals itself, which actively confuses people about the conditions of their own lives, the forces acting upon them, which actively effaces the boundaries between war and peace and domestic and foreign, between thought and action. You know, the one of the effects of the sort of um, totalizing information warfare, and I have a piece that will come out in tablet in the next couple of days, I don't know, uh, you know, in relation to when this podcast publishes, but but I'm writing a piece now essentially about the sort of information warfare domain in the Israel-Hamas war. And, you know, one of the points I'm making is, as I've said, I think people continually get this wrong in terms of thinking that control of the information space is what's determinative and, and that you can do cognitive hacking. And if you send the right tweets or whatever, you get the enemy to just fold and and fall down uh, and, and you don't even have to do any fighting. And it's not just the US that believe that. Like, you know, I think the Russian command actually sort of fell for some of this stuff too. But what you really end up seeing is that much of this has very little effect on the battlefield, the proximate battlefield, but it draws spectators into an arena of permanent perpetual conflict in which they lose sight of themselves as individuals. They lose sight of themselves as subjects of a particular people in a particular nation. They start to believe in bizarre fantasies, um, you know, coddled Twitch streamers in America begin to identify themselves with um, Hamas terrorists. It's, uh, it is a, an effect of a sort of illusory, immersive yeah. environment that demoralizes people, deranges their, their moral sense, deranges their sort of um, practical ability to relate to the world around them and to distinguish between the fantasies inside their head and the cold realities of the world such as it is. All right, fantastic. I completely agree with that depiction of um, of the Hall of Mirrors that we currently inhabit. Jacob, thanks very much for joining us. And uh, for listeners, um, I would uh, urge you to check out once again Jacob's writing, particularly that uh, long essay on disinformation. And uh, we'll be back, of course, on this podcast with more um, both on data capitalism and surveillance, um, and of course, much more immediately on Israel and Palestine. Thank you. All right, listener, make sure to follow us on social media. 
Subscribe for a lot more content like this at patreon.com slash and I will see you again very, very soon. Catch you later. Bye-bye.